Hey folks, this is Doug Thornell, and as always, I'm joined by my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod. Adrian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I, I think, are, are we on week six at this point? Uh, you know, I've lost track. I, I honestly, like, I, I've lost track of, you know, when, I know my office shut down maybe in early to mid-March. Um, God, it was funny, like, Two months ago, all I could think about was going to Jazz Fest, which is this weekend, and and I felt like it was like so far away when I was thinking. And now, you know, it's like it's literally coming up. But um, um, but uh, we are joined by a good friend of ours and one of the leading Democratic strategists in the business, Guy Cecil. Uh, Guy is the chairman of Priorities USA, um, and uh, he is, which is an independent political action committee. Uh, he's also the founder of Miles Strategies, and he's worked in uh, high-profile political uh, campaigns for nonprofits and corporate issue advocacy campaigns for 15 years. He was the executive director of the DSCC um, and worked uh, as a senior uh, strategist on uh, Hillary Clinton's campaign in 2008, and in 16, guy, were you were you on the campaign in 16, or were you on, with priorities in 16? Yeah, that's right. Um, I met guy the first time I met guy was almost 20 years ago in Missouri uh, when he was my he was my boss. I was the field director for the western part of the state of Missouri, Jen O'Malley Dillon was the field director for St. Louis and Guy was our boss. Um, and uh, yeah, that was the first time I met him. And uh, I like great guy, great strategist. Because I mean, I was younger. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, Doug, you have guy, thanks for joining us. Guy, guy and I Thank worked you. together on the coordinated ca- campaign in Arkansas in 2002, when Mark Pryor was on the ballot, I was the state um, party communications director, and Guy ran the coordinated campaign. So, you've actually known me, known Guy longer than um, than I have. So, you've got me beat. Um, Guy, <laughs> wasn't it so fun when we got to, to compete you. in Missouri and uh, Missouri and Arkansas? Oh my God, were like prime competitive races. Like, I'm, it was I'm a battleground state. Days. Yeah, totally. Guy, we're and so we elected a dead. We we, we elected a dead man. That election. was really wild. That was, yeah. I mean, I've never been a part of something where, you know, three, two or three weeks before the election, the governor of Missouri, who was running for the Senate, uh, passed away. And he was running against uh, John Ashcroft, actually, at the time. And um, the voters ended up still voting for him, uh, knowing that if he won, that his uh, his wife, uh, Jean Carnahan, would take the seat. It was a uh, I mean, you can. It was just an extraordinary and sad experience, and just figuring out how to manage all of that in an election while you're dealing with, you know, what was real mourning around the state was was quite was quite something. Quite a way to get your uh, sea legs underneath you in politics, right? Yeah, for sure. Not in a great way. Um, well, guy, thank you so much for joining us today. As, as Doug mentioned, you do run. I think it what is considered to be the um, preeminent super PAC um, organization in the Democratic Party ecosystem. Um, Priorities USA has been around for quite a long time, started under the Obama administration. Guy, do you want to sort of give the history of Priorities USA and 
kind of what your what your purpose is in this large apparatus sure. of democratic organizations. Yes, yeah, so Priorities was the independent organization that supported uh, President Obama's re-election in 2012. Um, it was founded by Obama alums. Uh, this is before my, my time with them. And, uh, and then in 2016, it supported uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, nomination. And then since then, we've really um, focused on three areas that I think are really critical not just for the Democratic Party, but specifically for this election. The first is we started a foundation that is focused on voting rights and on battling voter suppression through litigation. We're one of the largest funders of voting rights litigation in the country. Uh, We've won 11 suits so far. We have four active cases and more to come. And so we've been really doubling down, and it's obviously especially important given the dynamics we're going to face in November because of COVID-19. The second is to build um, an apparatus online that can not just compete, but exceed the work that so many people talked about uh, from the Trump campaign in 2016. And so we were the largest funder of digital advertising in House and Senate races in 2018. And Actually, we've been online against Trump since last year, uh, outspending Donald Trump in the battleground states online. And we want to make sure that we have uh, the cutting edge creative and testing and targeting and buying so that we are meeting people where they are getting their news information. And then finally, is just to make sure that Joe Biden is elected president. (laughs) Uh, The most important thing of all, everything else we do is in service to electing Joe Biden and defeating Donald Trump. And so, in fact, today we uh, just announced that we are reserving $64 million in television time. We've already made reservations on digital for the fall. Um, so we want to make sure that we're doing everything we can in, in the battleground states and around the country to uh, to defeat Donald Trump. Guy, uh you guys also made an important announcement last week, and you put out a memo. Um, anything in there that you want to highlight for folks? Yeah, I think one of the most important things um, for folks to understand as we think about this election is, number one, who has access to the ballot matters. And, 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 and we got to make sure that we maintain in-person voting with all of the safety precautions, that we expand early voting. Um, no excuse absentee ballot voting with the appropriate safeguards, because we know that oftentimes when you expand absentee ballot voting, uh, African-Americans, Hispanic voters, younger voters are more likely to have their ballot um, discounted. And so we added an additional $2 million to our litigation fund last week. We also just wanted to highlight the fact that Priorities is not the only organization doing this work, that there are Groups like Color of Change and League of Conservation Voters and American Bridge, organizations that are in this fight, uh, working together, partnering together to make sure that, you know, I mean, just to be clear, Donald Trump and the RNC has a quarter of a billion dollars on hand today. So it's going to take all of us working together. And we want to continue to lift up uh, those folks like, like a Color of Change that's doing some remarkable work to organize, mobilize, and and turn out voters, you know, not just in the presidential race, but in Senate, House, and down-ballot races. 
So, Guy, last week we had Mark Elias, who, of course, we all know and love. I'm one of the preeminent attorneys in um, working in Democratic politics today. Um, and we really wanted him to talk about what Republicans are doing to basically just build on what you were just talking about, to suppress the vote and really focusing on trying to deter states from implementing vote-by-mail programs, um, especially in light of COVID-19. Can you sort of expand upon that from a more of a political strategist standpoint? I mean, what are you seeing out there in the states? Like, what, give, a, give, give us some examples of maybe some battleground states who have some really good vote-by-mail programs in place where we don't have to worry so much. And then maybe talk to us also about states like I think Texas is still way behind. No surprise there, given their governor. Um, but, but talk to us a little bit about how you think that's playing out. And is, is this something that we as Democrats should be concerned about? Or do we think that by the time the fall rolls around, we're going to have a systematic process across the board in place um, where every single person out there will have no problem voting by mail? Yeah, look, voter suppression didn't start with COVID-19. Um, you know, I just right. know, going back to our time in Arkansas, um, I mean, I remember, um, you know, in Arkansas, back to, in 2002, we had to sue um, because there was all sorts of voter intimidation during early vote where people were taking pictures of voters and threatening them. We've been dealing with voter suppression in this country since the very beginning. I think what we've seen first, you know, since since the day after President Obama was elected, a coordinated legislative and legal strategy designed by conservatives to simply put up additional limitations. So there's a lot of focus on voter ID, and that's one of them. But there's all sorts of things. Um, the elimination of precinct locations, the consolidation of precincts in black and brown areas, signature match laws that would require a volunteer election worker to essentially become a signature matching expert, making right. it more difficult for college students to vote. Like we've been dealing with this for a while, but but because of COVID-19, it, it's gonna be even more important that we focus on this. So I'll give you a, a, an example. We've seen places like Pennsylvania expand vote by mail. And we want every state to expand vote by mail, but there need to be safeguards in place. And so politically speaking, you know, we need to make sure we're, we are, um, we're doing everything we can to encourage and when necessary, shame state legislatures into passing this legislation. We need to make sure that the federal government provides the resources. That means Democrats and Republicans voting to pass legislation that increases the funding for this because states are going to be in a very rough spot financially coming out of this crisis. So there are things that we can do. We, we hope that legislatures and governors will help us solve this problem with financial support from the federal government. But where necessary, we will sue to make sure that we are um, protecting those rights and expanding them as we move into November. Guy, uh, you guys are obviously doing a, bunch, a lot of research. Um... What what is what are you seeing in the research right now? I know you know I, I'm lo I'm looking at the Navigator stuff every day, but what are you seeing in the research, um, as it relates to Trump and his handling of the coronavirus? Yeah, so I think the most important thing to sort of set the table on this is it was going to be a close election before this happened, and it's still going to be a close election. 
that fundamentally the way that partisanship and the divide in this country and the way that the electoral college works, even if we were to win the, elect, the, the popular vote by three or four points, five points, we would still have a very close electoral college. So I think we need to understand that fundamentally we're going to have a close election. I think the, the biggest thing, and we saw this in some of the public polling as well, that we saw some improvements in Trump's favorable numbers. Um, they weren't nearly as high as the increases that governors have seen or other world leaders have seen. And I think a lot of that was because early on in the crisis, most of the coverage was, you know, talking heads, right? It was people on TV. There weren't a lot of stories to tell about how this was impacting people. And I think Trump was able to get away with using his press conferences as, you know, self-congratulatory rallies. What we have found recently is as the real consequences are here, as we're seeing you know, people dying and healthcare workers unprotected and all of the consequences of his inaction and deception, we're seeing those numbers return to their pre-COVID uh, numbers. And, and I think that that's going to be something critical as we move forward. I think the other piece we should understand is that some of the issues that Democrats were talking about before this are going to be even more relevant after, right? Think about healthcare. The fact that the administration is still suing to overturn the Affordable Care Act and its protections while we're in the middle of a pandemic. Right. It's just not, I mean, it's immoral. And so I, I think we're going to continue to see those types of issues still resonate in November. Well, and back to your point, I mean, there's still so much that the administration is doing right now to suppress the vote, to try to take health care away from millions of Americans, um, you know, to um, you know, still continuously, um, you know, try to break apart families at the border who are simply see seeking a better life for themselves and their families. I mean, there's so much the administration is doing that we're just not able to, to lift up and get oxygen um, on and because of the COVID-19 virus and the fact that it's completely monopolizing the news cycle right now. Um, but Guy, I want to switch really quickly to the map itself. Um, you know, you've been working in politics for a long time, especially at the presidential level, um, having been Hillary Clinton's political director in 2008, um, and obviously, you know, dictating a lot of the spending uh, priorities in terms of, like, where we're focusing our, our efforts in the presidential elections. Give us a, a feel for where we are now going into 2020. You know, that some people think that Florida and Ohio might be out of reach. Um, obviously, states like Arizona and North Carolina are coming more into play. Texas is on the horizon. Give us like a, you know, a very top line version of kind of where you think the battleground map is shaping up. Yeah, so I think um, it's always you can always tell where somebody thinks most of the battleground looks like by where they're investing. And the things that we have consistently seen over the last year and the places where we are at least starting, it doesn't mean they will be our only investments, but the places where we are starting our investment are Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, and North Carolina. We think in terms of where we can pick up electoral votes, where we can make this race uh, competitive, those six states are really our first six in terms of investment, both online and on television. And I think we'll be focusing a lot on those areas. You know, Florida is a perennially close state. Um, it's obviously a significant investment because it's a big state, 
but winning Florida could be transformative in terms of the Electoral College. And so I think we'll continue to see that uh, on our targeted list. Um, but and your home state. state. It happens to be my home state. Yes, go Gators. <laughs> um, it, uh, that has nothing to do with whether we're giving money or supporting it, but yes. Uh, of course. And, uh, but, but I think it's really, you know, those six states I think are going to be the starting place. And we may, and by the way, I would mention three of those states also have Senate races that will be competitive. And so there's some synergy there in terms of making sure we're doing all we can to elect Mark Kelly and Cal Cunningham and Gary Peters, who are going to have competitive races. Guy, take us through the creative that is out there right now. You guys are doing a ton of creative development, um, both uh, for television and for uh, your digital for digital platforms. Can you just give us a a, a, a little bit of a, a, a summary of sort of what the the flavor of the of the creative is? Sure. So, um, first of all, we have an amazing um, team um, at Priorities that includes scriptwriters and producers and media planners and buyers. Um, I get to come on and do interviews, but they're the ones that are doing the work. And, you know, it's especially amazing given the fact that they also are dealing with all the challenges related to COVID-19 and helping relatives and working from home. Our, our digital team has produced just in the last three and a half weeks, over 640 pieces of creative content online. Um, right now, as you might imagine, most of that content is holding Donald Trump a- accountable. And, and frankly, um, a lot of it's just using Donald Trump's words and using the facts on the number of cases, on the number of deaths, on Trump's early ridiculous statements about how this was going to be limited to, you know, two, then 15 people. Um, and a lot of it is, is focused on just making sure people have the information about those early decisions and why they had consequences even today. On television, a lot of the same type of creative, um, you know, there's one particular ad that's gotten more attention. Um, the Trump campaign disliked it so much that they actually issued a cease and desist order to try to get stations to pull it off the air. Um, all of the stations declined to do that. And then Which the one was that? Deci- uh, this was uh, one that used Trump's words superimposed over a graph showing the number of cases. So you know, him talking how this was not real, how it was a hoax, how we were only going to be at 15 cases, how it was all going to disappear. It was going to be a miracle. The summer warm weather was going to take care of it. And superimposed over that on the screen were, was just a simple line chart of the number of cases going up as he was saying these ridiculous, untruthful things. So he's tried to get that out taken off the air. It, it wasn't. Um, now we're focused also just on the the lack of protective equipment, masks, and gear that our medical professionals need. And the fact that the administration continues not just to do things to not help, but continues to do things to make it more difficult, forcing states to bid against one another. I mean, the, you know, the behavior of this administration is not just about ideology. It's about truth. And it's about a basic sense of human decency. And on all three of those counts, they have failed. And so our job is just to make sure we're being clear and direct that those actions had consequences. So, Guy, I want to ask you um, one final question here. Um, How do you, you know, I I know, well, both of us do a lot of um, media commentary, and we've done a morning Joe together a couple times, which is always fun. Um, But I want to ask you to sort of be a media critic here a little bit. Um, Donald Trump is going out there every single day 
um, live from the White House, live from the press briefing room, and monopolizing airtime for about 90 minutes to two hours every day, um, using the bully pulpit to his advantage. Um, You know, he's obviously espousing a lot of rhetoric um, from the press briefing room. Um, He's misinforming a lot of the American people about COVID-19, the dangers of COVID-19, but he's also using this to his advantage because he's not able to do campaign rallies. He's not able to do these live events that he thrives on. Do you think that, I guess guess it's sort of a two-part question. Number one, do you think the media should be covering these events um, that he does every day? And number two, how do you think Democrats can overcome, and I I don't just mean Joe Biden, I mean the entire Democratic Party apparatus. How can we overcome the um, difficulty that that we have right now to sort of match Trump from an earned media standpoint, given the fact that he's taking up so much of the oxygen? It's a, it's, it is the right question. You know, I understand um, the sort of propensity to want to cover a a presidential news conference. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously this is not a normal president. Uh, Um, and there's no right. responsibility of them to cover it live. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you know, you watch these press conferences, you might, you might, if you're lucky, get 10 minutes of helpful information. Mm-hmm. And, and that usually comes from the medical professional. So it's, it does seem to me like, you know, outlets can be more judicious about, about sharing the information that is relevant, but not just showing him attacking the media and attacking governors and attacking, you know, showing essentially campaign commercials that, that it's counterproductive. And some of the stuff he's sharing is, is actively harmful. Um, and, and so I, I think we need to be more collectively, more judicious about how we're, how we're covering it, how we're receiving it, what the media is doing. There's nothing that says these things have to be covered from beginning to end. You know, in terms of the response, I think our first job is to make sure that we're reaching people where they are. We know that more, you know, you go on a Facebook feed and so much of that feed is about COVID-19. And I think it's important that democratic organizations, whether you're doing it, you know, virally or whether you're paying, it's important that we use all of the tools that our collective organizations have to spread the truth and rebut some of these false um, whether you want to call them allegations, attacks, descriptions of what's happening, um, but that we don't let this simply be a, a Trump rally in the Rose Garden. And so we've got to make sure, whether it's virally or through paid communication, that we are doing that. We've got to make sure that we're we're on the airwaves, um, on these shows, we're butting clearly and directly when the president is not telling the truth. There's no There's no magic bullet, right? There's no easy answer to this. This is one of the powers of incumbency. I will say, I think it's, I do think that it's a, it's a, it's a mixed bag in terms of what Trump is getting out of it at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was reading, a, uh, I think, I think it was Maggie Haberman or one of the reporters who said that, you know, Trump's advisors know, they specifically said, Trump said, Trump advisors know that Priorities USA is going to use what Trump, <laughs> what, what Trump says and it's going to hurt them. Um, but they just yep. can't stop them. And, you know, I think right. our job is just to hold them accountable, you know, and, and the more we can do that, the the better. Um, and since it's the last question, let me just say thanks to, you know, everybody that's on the front lines of this. I mean, and it's not just the medical professionals, although they're obviously leading it. I mean, the 
the people cleaning grocery stores and serving food and stocking shelves and working nursing homes. And, you know, there are so many people affected by this and our families and around the country. And um, I just want to say thanks to them and uh, just say how grateful we are that they're doing the, you know, the work that's most important in all of this. Really appreciative. I, I'm so glad you said that guy at the very end because I have to say that my my dad was watching you on TV the other day when you also used your your precious airtime to thank all of our workers out there who on the front lines who are um, facing this pandemic and keeping the stores open for us and keeping the hospitals up and running and, and treating patients. Um, and he came away and he said, I really like Guy Cecil. He is such a good guy. <laughs> and it's true. You are an amazing, your you're dad an amazing good operator. Taste. <laughs> you're an amazing uh, you're an amazing strategist you're an, an amazing friend um and you're thank most you. importantly just a really good person and we thank you so much guy for all that you're oh, doing to help democrats this cycle and for joining us today well thanks to both of you thank you guy great that was great and totally uh everything he said at the end is uh is i know adrian and i support and it's uh it's a, a time where we have to be very thankful for those folks who are risking their lives every day by whether that's going into an ER room or if that's going to the grocery store. And, and um, you know, these are these cl- truly are the essential folks in this country who are keeping this country up and protecting us. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Guy Cecil. Uh, Chairman of Priorities USA, fantastic guest. Thank you for joining us. And for my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell. Uh, This has been The Electables, and we'll catch you next time.